We love our pets, but when the floor is covered in fur, that's harder to love. Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has powerful 8,000 PA suction to make hair vanish from floors in just one pass. Plus, the roller brush has automatic detangling for easy hands-free maintenance. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the latest massive strikes on Ukrainian cities as Russia launches another huge and deadly bombardment. We also analyse the scandal in Russia as a nearly naked party outrages public opinion and the Kremlin. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's gonna break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 2nd of January one year and 312 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by foreign reporter Tim Sigsworth, editor of the Central Asia and South Caucasus Bulletin, James Kilner, and our guest, calling in live from Kiev, is journalist, culture manager and editor at the Ukrainian's media, Bodana Neborak. I started by asking Tim to bring us the latest news from Ukraine. Thank you, David. Five civilians are dead and almost 100 others have been injured after a wave of Russian missile and drone strikes this morning on Ukraine's two largest cities. Strategic bombers and Iranian-made Shahed drones attacked Kiev and Kharkiv in the early hours in what was Russia's third major assault on Ukrainian cities in the last four days. Ukraine's Air Force said it shot down 35 out of 35 drones that were launched over the country and 73 out of 99 missiles. The missiles included 10 hypersonic Kinzals, 73 cruise missiles of different types, 4 anti-radar missiles and 12 Iskander-M ballistic missiles. Now, the anti-radar missiles and the ballistic missiles were not shot down, but Ukraine says it shot down all of the hypersonic Kinzal missiles. So during the attack, NATO member Poland scrambled four F-16 fighter jets to patrol its airspace as the attacks continued. Russia has claimed that it hit all its intended targets and that they were all military. But the strikes have injured civilians and damaged clearly non-military areas, including a car dealership that was engulfed in flames and an apartment block in Kyiv where 49 people were injured. Civilians were also wounded in the smaller cities of Fastiv and Orakiv. Kira Rudik, a Ukrainian MP who leads the liberal Holos opposition party, shared images on social media of her her Kiev home partially in rubble and her windows destroyed. Around 250,000 people are estimated to have been left without power in Kiev and the surrounding region, and there's unsurprisingly been strong reaction to the strikes. Zelensky has said that there have now been 170 drones and dozens of missiles fired on Ukraine since New Year's Eve alone. The absolute majority of them, he said, have targeted civilian infrastructure, belying Russian claims to only target military facilities and installations. 
Mr Zelensky hailed Ukraine's Western allies and thanked them for the donated weapons and ammunition, which he said is helping us to strengthen our air shield. Every day and night, he said, this helps save hundreds of lives that would have been lost if we didn't have patriots and other defence systems. His advisor, Andrew Yermak, said Russia's evil attacks overnight will have to be answered for. The Russians again hit civilians and residential buildings, he wrote on Telegram. Every evil will have to be answered for. The United States ambassador to Ukraine, Bridget A. Brink, said on X, formerly Twitter, that it is urgent and critical that Ukraine is supported to stop Putin, who she said was ringing in 2024 with relentless missile and drone attacks on innocent civilians. Dmitry Kuleba, Ukraine's foreign minister, has urged the West to do five things. First, to deliver more anti-air weapons and ammunition, and to do so faster than it has done. Second, to deliver drones. Third, to deliver long-range missiles with, which can reach targets more than 300 kilometres away. Fourth, give Ukraine the £300 billion in Russian assets that have been frozen in the West since the war began. And finally, isolate Russian diplomats in their countries and international organisations. This morning's attacks are not the first, evidently, to strike Ukraine in the past week. There's been a real intensification in Russian airstrikes by drones and missiles. And on Friday, when this started, Russia launched its largest aerial assault on Ukraine since the start of the war, killing at least 39 people. Ukraine struck back on the city of Belgorod, 20 miles over the border, on Saturday in an attack which Russian officials have said killed 25 civilians, including five children. A Ukrainian security source told the BBC that more than 70 drones were launched as part of that retaliation and that the deaths in the city were caused by, quote, the incompetent work of Russian air defence, as shrapnel from targets intercepted by Russian air defences fell on the city. Vladimir Putin said that Ukraine's retaliation on Belgorod on Saturday would, quote, not go unpunished, and vowed to intensify airstrikes in response, although he insisted that only military targets would be attacked. Yesterday, on New Year's Day, Russian forces launched a record number of drones across Ukraine, as 90 Shahed unmanned aerial vehicles attacked across the country. And although these attacks have been very serious, they have not gone entirely to plan for Russia. As said earlier, Ukraine has intercepted a great number of the missiles and drones launched over over the country. And particularly today, in the region of Voronezh, which borders Donetsk in Ukraine, a missile was mistakenly fired on the village of Petropavlovka, which is around 100 miles from the Ukrainian border. The Russian Defense Ministry has admitted that a, quote, abnormal discharge of aircraft ammunition damaged six houses but caused no casualties. Footage shared by the prominent Russian telegram channel Baza showed charred debris strewn across streets in the village, which appears to have been caused by an errant Russian missile mistakenly launched or released on the small village. Alexander Gusev, the region's governor, said, quote, an emergency release of ammunition damaged seven houses, not six, as the defence ministry said, and forced the residents of several streets to be taken to emergency accommodation. Now, the state news agent 
agency RIA Novosti said an investigation was underway into how exactly it happened. And it hasn't been specified what exactly went on. It's not the first time as well that Russian fighter jets have accidentally struck targets in Russia when on their way to Ukraine. Now, in the past couple of hours, Ukraine has retaliated for this morning's attacks with a series of raids on Belgorod. The city, the regional governor, Vyacheslav Gladkov, has said nine surface-to-air missiles were fired on the city by Ukrainian forces. He says they were shot down by anti-air defences in two attacks, which left two people dead, left one person dead, I beg your pardon, and five civilians wounded. Now, these were caused by shrapnel injuries. The person who is said to have died was driving a car and a, a missile exploded close to the car. And this comes following a warning earlier from President Zelensky that Ukraine would respond to Russia's attacks and would continue to do so, making sure Moscow answered for, quote, every life taken away. Quote, the terrorist state must feel the repercussions of its actions. End quote. David, back to you. Well, thank you very, very much, Tim, for all of that. I know you have to run back to the foreign desk and continue working on the Telegraph's live blog. So uh, just so listeners are aware, the Telegraph runs a live blog on the war every day. Tim is running it today. So that's how he's been able to join us to bring us up to date with the latest uh, developments. Thank you very much, Tim, for your time. But Dana, can we go to you? It's really good to hear from you again. Tim has just taken us through the news from last night and this morning. Can you tell us about your night? Thank you, David. I'm glad to be here and to be able to speak uh, to your audience. I need to say that uh, the night was really very difficult here in Ukraine and the morning also. Today I uh, met my friend who is a writer, but now he is a military, and he told uh, that it was uh, the total apocalypse here in Kyiv. So uh, it was one of the deadliest attacks uh, on the city, and definitely I want to express my gratitude to all those people who were supporting Ukraine, because thanks to them we right now have the possibility to protect ourselves, not uh, in an ideal way, but still... if we even try to imagine how it would be if all these missiles will target their aims, it would be totally devastating. So that's like this uh, right now in Kyiv. And can you talk us through a little bit what you did last night? I mean, we've been reporting on these missile and drone strikes now for, well, for the the entirety of the, the full scale invasion. But it might be good, I think, to give our listeners just a sense of what it means when you hear the alarm, what are your first actions um, and what was the scene in the city this morning? It was very difficult because I was on my way to Kyiv, so I was on train and it was late night when first air raids were in in Kyiv and then I understood that there is a drone attack and several days before we also had a drone attack which was followed by a missile attack. So I understood that probably it would be the same. I was on train heading to Kyiv and I really um, followed online how it uh, comes how the rockets are coming uh, to different regions, but uh, many of them were targeting Kyiv. And then when I finally got to railway station, it was around 8 a.m., 
I was only able to hide uh, in the metro station and just to wait what comes next. And there were several ways of these rockets coming to the city. And then I went back to my uh, house, which is located in downtown. And it was also very difficult because there was a debris and there was a fire in my neighborhood so unfortunately the air was really dark and we had smoke here because uh, the damage was kind of huge. But Donna, Tim told us a little bit about the attacks on New Year's Eve. Could you tell us about your new New Year's Eve? How did you spend it? I spent it with my close people in the western part of the country but it was also a difficult uh, new year because Russians targeted my native city of Lviv, which is uh, near the western border of the country. So it was also a deadly attack on Lviv, but also uh, to Odessa. And definitely people are trying to hope for the better, but right now it is quite difficult because we understand how high are the stakes of our survival and we also understand how many resources, missiles and drones are gathered by Russia and they may use them uh, against us. So it is very, very difficult to have kind of regular New Year Eve because it it is very difficult to plan anything. We are just without this opportunity. But Anna, previously on the podcast, you've spoken about the Ukrainian cultural scene. It's what you work in. Um, How is that scene reacting and responding to the events of the past few weeks? What are you seeing? Uh, Yeah, Uh, I cannot say that uh, we have a very direct response right now. Of course, there are people who write op-eds or essays and they inform the world how it is, for example, to be a Ukrainian artist, Ukrainian writer right now in Kyiv, in Odessa, in Kharkiv or in Lviv. People try to go on, people still try to plan something. But I would like to say a couple of words about recent uh, books that have been published uh, and uh, maybe some recent literary awards. And fortunately, uh, in December, we were able to um, follow how several literary awards were granted for essayism, for fiction, for nonfiction, and so on. And there is one book of really prominent importance I would love to point your attention to. It is the book called The Language of War by Oleksandr Mehat. It will be published in 2024 in June by Ellen Lane. It is the imprint of Penguin Random House. And it is a great book of uh, essayism and commentaries uh, about what happens when your world changes overnight and uh, how the writer who joined the military um, accepts these changes and how he comments to these changes. I think that a lot of changes are very, very difficult to explain to foreigners because uh, you might be very empathetic towards us, but still you won't understand what we live in if you don't come here, when you don't try to experience this. And I really believe that this book by Alexandra is a very, very good one to um, try to understand us better. 
But I need to say that so many uh, Ukrainian writers uh, right now are making some documentation. Uh, they write reportage, they uh, make documentary films. And also, for example, we have a very fresh book about the city of Bakhmut. Uh, you probably remember that time of the previous New Year of 2023, when Wagner troops were trying to um, get into the city. And it is a book of uh, stories of those people who were defending Bakhmut, but also about the civilians uh, from the city. And there is also the second part uh, of uh, essayism telling us the multicultural and uh, uh, European story of this city from the east of Ukraine. It was published by Ukrainer Publishing House and it is uh, written by Miroslav Layuk. Well, thank you for, for sharing that, Bodana. Just one last question from me that I know I think James has one as well. But looking ahead to 2024, what are you hoping for personally, but also professionally? What What's changing in your sphere? I don't think that I will be very um, specific in this because I just want to say the same things that our Minister of Foreign Affairs, Kuleba, tells that... It's like that. We really need additional air defense systems. We need much weapons to Ukraine and we uh, need the decision to transfer frozen Russian assets for the needs of Ukraine. And it is very obvious. But when speaking personally and professionally, uh, what I really, really hope is uh, to to witness the deconstruction of the uh, different myths we have uh, around Ukraine, but also around Russia, because we will have the 10th anniversary of this war. We will be two years already in the full war. And I just hope that the first shock that comes when you understand that there is a big country and it is quite close to you and there is full war there and there is war crimes there and so on, that you want to discover the uh, real stories from this country, that you want to discover its history, that you want to discover its culture. And that's what I wish to myself, but also to all people who really wonder what contemporary Ukraine is. Badana, thank you so much. James, I know you have one quick question. I was just wondering whether most Ukrainians were watching uh, Zelensky's New Year's Eve address and what their reaction was to it. Thank you, James. Of course, it is very difficult for me to speak for all the Ukrainians, but I suppose that many of them were watching this speech. And uh, I can say about uh, my close people and my family what affected them really. And I think that they were affected with uh, this part about European integration because it is the thing that so many people who are close to me, who work together with me or my relatives, they were in different way working on this as an idea for all their life. And that really mattered uh, to them. So I think that many, many people were following, but uh, I also need to say that it is very, very difficult right now to keep um, high and good mood. Uh, of course, we uh, hope and work for the best because uh, I think that it is kind of feature of adulthood. Like you understand that you're 
are at war and your country is at war. And the adult decision would be support of your military, of your society, of your close people. But I also need to emphasize that these times are really very, very difficult and Ukraine needs uh, a lot of support now. And not only Ukraine as such, but also Ukrainians. So I just want one more time to say thank you to all people who support Ukraine in different ways. But Anna, thank you so much for joining us. We'll come back to you for a final thought if you'd like. But let's first go to James. James, Happy New Year to you. Thank you so much for coming on today. Um, You've been doing quite a lot of reporting over the past few weeks. What have you been looking at? Hi, David. Happy New Year. I hope you had a good time up in Isla. Uh, Yes, I've been doing, I've been holding the fort, so to speak, since Boxing Day. It wasn't working yesterday. So I just want to, the first thing I want to do is just, Comment slightly on um, on uh, Tim's Tim's news briefing, and what we've seen is a is definitely an uptick in this terrible violence in in, in Ukraine. These missile attacks and drone attacks on Ukraine, and also this um, alleged Ukrainian attack on uh, the city of Belgorod, which is about thirty miles north of the um, Ukrainian border, uh, fifty miles north of uh, Kharkiv. Um, I think. For your listeners, David, the really important thing to remember is that this is coming uh, really just as Putin kicks off his presidential campaign. If you remember, there's a presidential election slated for the middle of March in Russia, and Putin officially uh, sort of launched his campaign a couple of weeks ago, and he's very much campaigning on this sort of on the sort of stability ticket. His his. If, if, if I mean, everyone who's listening to this podcast will remember that his initial ambition for, for Ukraine was to capture the country in a week or two and really not bother with Russians. That obviously negates the plan. Amazing resistance from Ukrainians uh, and support from the West, etc. Uh, un- undermine that. But he very much feels, and we've been talking about this a lot on the podcast, that he now has the advantage in terms of weapons, in terms of economic capacity, in terms of manpower, etc. And he feels like he's on the front foot. And this has allowed him, in the build-up to, to this election, the campaign on stability ticket. Now, at the same time, uh, since Boxing Day, we have seen a, a massive increase in violence, first with the uh, sinking of a, of a Russian warship in, in, in occupied Ukraine, uh, occupied Crimea, uh, and then the, the anticipated retaliation from the Kremlin, uh, and then again this alleged um, uh, shelling or missile stroke on Belgorod, which I'm going to, I'll come back to in a minute, and then again the retaliation for that. Now, this alleged Ukrainian missile strike or shelling of Belgorod is really, really important for the context of the war because it is the most serious loss of life in Russia since the start of it. Obviously, that doesn't compare to what the Ukrainians are going through. But for Putin, this is critical because once again, it undermines his presidential platform that he is the candidate of stability. He's, he is the, the strong man who's not going to bother ordinary Russians. How can he get away with continuing to say that when 24, 25 ordinary Russians apparently have been killed in the center of a, of a, of a relatively large city? So what, and, and obviously since then we've had these uh, terrible retaliation attacks on Kharkiv and, and Kiev mainly, but, but across the country. Uh, um, and I think this is the key point, and Bordana will please chip in if, if you disagree or you want to comment, but I think we may see a general rise in 
violence from possibly from both sides while this presidential election is 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 playing out i think the ukrainians will try to keep to try will keep trying to undermine this sort of message of stability that uh, putin wants to give out and he will respond with with retaliatory attacks circling back to this the, these attacks on belgorod on um, on saturday lunchtime I had to look through the videos of the attacks. It's always a difficult and disturbing thing to be doing when you're watching dead bodies, etc. But what I was struck, although struck by, although the Russians said that these were missile attacks from Ukraine, I actually didn't see any craters, any missile craters, any sort of damage that I would attribute to a missile strike. Uh, I'm, I'm in no way an arms expert, etc. But I've just had to learn on the job, so to speak, in the last couple of years, watching countless videos of this sort of stuff. I did see dead bodies, so, so I don't doubt that uh, several people were killed. And I did see uh, burnings and flames and, and cars and debris, etc. But I didn't see the sort of massive structural damage that I would normally attribute to missile strikes. strikes. And, and later that day in Kharkiv, we saw... The main, the biggest hotel there hit by a missile strike, clearly incredibly badly damaged. So I think that's also really important to, to bear in mind. We know the Ukrainians have blamed the... Initially, they tried to say that they never, they didn't attack Belgorod at all. And more recently, and they said that the deaths were linked to a stray Russian missile. Since then, they've rowed back a bit and they've said, actually, we did attack it with uh, a lot of drones. And it was uh, the incompetence of the Russian air defence systems which shot down the drones and then the debris killed all sorts of people on the ground the truth is somewhere somewhere out there and um i wouldn't want to speculate who's right and who's wrong but they, they, my hypothesis is based on looking at video evidence from from the uh from central belgorod on saturday lunchtime fast forward to yesterday so new year's day putin made a, a very important point on new year's day of going to visit both injured russian soldiers in hospital and handing out medals to Russian soldiers who have done heroic or supposedly heroic things, etc., on the battlefield. He is, as I was trying to say, as I was saying, he is making stability centre of his presidential campaign. But at the same time, he has to keep saluting the soldiers and, and keep the war effort momentum going forward. And uh, n- neither of these incidences were particularly surprising. Except for a couple of things, which again I, I just quite uh, like to take a couple of minutes of time to highlight. Firstly, they came within twelve hours of Putin's New Year's Eve address, which was very staid, especially by comparison to the previous to to a year earlier. So New Year's Eve two days ago, he made the video on on the walls of the Kremlin all by himself, and he and he spoke about family values and traditional Russian values, that sort of thing. In a relatively short address, this was clearly his election pitch. He didn't mention the war. He did say the soldiers were heroes, but he didn't mention Ukraine, didn't mention the war, he didn't mention the special operation. The previous year, he'd been surrounded by army guys or soldiers, and he'd been saluting their heroism and been much more militaristic in style. So again, that toning down, um, only to ramp it back up uh, the next day with his visits to the hospital and, and handing out medals to soldiers. The second thing I'd like to say, David, is that on his when he was in the hospital talking to the injured soldiers, he did something which I, I've not heard quite this sort of language before. He talked about Russia having the strategic initiative in Ukraine. Now, previously, he's spoken about 
uh, the war in slightly abstract terms. And he, he's been careful not to, he's been careful to portray Russian forces as resolute and definitely not on the defensive as they had been a year ago. But he hasn't been, to, to my knowledge, bold enough to say that they're on the, you know, they're on the, uh, they've got the strategic initiative, uh, we're going to win this. He has said that his, his aims are still fully maximalist. He still wants to capture Ukraine. But again, I think um, this statement yesterday was really important. And um, it, it again highlighted just how confident Putin is, uh, is feeling. Thank you very much, James, for taking us through um, some of your thoughts over the past few weeks. Then, Can we just talk about another couple of stories before we go to our final thoughts? There was a scandal in Russia that you've been looking at, the Almost Naked Party. What was it and what was the fallout? So this Almost Naked Party on uh, December 20th in a nightclub in, in Moscow was really, it's, it's, it involved some of the top socialites, pop stars, TV stars, TV presenters, rappers, whatever, that, that are still living in Moscow. I think uh, I saw about a thousand people went. The theme, it, it was organized by um, a very high profile Instagrammer slash TV presenter who sent out the um, the invite saying, I think this Christmas party, you've got to, got to turn up nearly naked. That was the theme. And so people did turn up in women in lingerie. One rapper turned up just wearing a sock strategically uh, positioned sock. Others were, were wearing mesh tops and, and BDSM gear on, on them, etc. It's sort of the sort of the sort of thing that would have been the norm in many ways in the more crazy hedonistic Moscow days of law and would have been accessible and would have been part of the scene and would have been accepted. That's the really important thing. This time there was a huge backlash and when when all these celebrities socialite posted these photos and video from this event on their Instagram feeds and Vekef feeds, etc., there was a massive backlash. Kremlin propagandists were saying, how can these people be holding such an extravagant party uh, when our soldiers are dying on the front line? All new Russians were annoyed. People were saying this is clearly some sort of decadent pro-West uh, loose lifestyle, uh, whereas the rest of the country is suffering. These, the, these Moscow elite are, are getting away with it. And essentially, they fell foul of these new unwritten austerity rules that Putin has put into place in the last year or so, where he wants Russia to be a country at war, to have their, their backs against the wall, to be, for there to be no fund for a wartime austerity to really be front and centre. As, as we discussed at length, he's reorientated the economy, inflation is booming, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And yet here you have celebs who are, are parting. At the same time, he's also outlawed. He's effectively made gay rights illegal. And I mean, in, in, in the sort of gay, not so much illegal, but it, it's sort of there's a grey zone, but effectively new laws which came in at the end of last year. Uh, have allowed Russian police to raid gay nightclubs and arrest people and charge them with promoting gay propaganda. Earlier last year, police also raided a series of nightclubs in Petersburg and Moscow and arrested people that they thought were too pro-West. So they're very wary of this party scene in Moscow and Petersburg, which they think and they believe has a sort of more pro-Western bent than they're happy with. So essentially... After these celebrities had their massive Christmas party on December 20th, they have been cancelled. One of them has been thrown in prison, promoting gay propaganda, and the nightclub has been shut down. It has been a, an extraordinarily severe um, reaction from the authorities, apparently with Putin's consent, basically to shut down this sort of behaviour. It's really, really insightful, David, into 
how Russian society has changed since the war and how, whereas this sort of behavior was acceptable and quite enjoyed as in a voyeuristic way, now it is uh, unacceptable. We need austerity. We need wartime feeling. Uh, this is a country in a wartime mode for the long run. Thank you very much, James. I don't know if you've got a final thought, James, but maybe we'll do, maybe you'll talk about the Stalin centers then. But let's go to Badana first. Badana, thank you so much for staying with us. Thank you so much for joining us from Kiev this morning. Thank you for sharing your experiences. What are your final thoughts today? Thank you so much, David, and thanks, James, uh, for your thoughts and ideas. I have just several comments, and I think that we cannot really speak about the increased level of violence after what we went, witnessed uh, in Ukraine during these uh, two years. But it is, of course, something different that happens in Belgorod. But also, I think that it is very important that we don't really have access of the international experts to access what happened really there. And I'm more than sure that Russia will do cruel things towards its own people and society to fulfill some of Putin's selection aims. So we just kind of think about Russia on our terms and ideas of how society operates and how government serves its society, because very frequently we do this mistake. We try to think about, for example, human rights or human dignity or, for example, the idea that government serves its people. But uh, that's probably not what happens in Russia. And uh, it is very important to remember when we try to explain what happens there. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Badana. Uh, thank you for joining us. And we hope you have a, a better afternoon and you stay safe. Uh, James Kilner, would you like to share your final thoughts? I think very good points there, Badana. Absolutely. We can, we can only do our best. I think it's important to keep trying there. On the, uh, so really quickly, David, you've asked me to talk about these Stalin centres. Again, I'm going straight into trying to understand what's going on in Russia. And I'll, I'll do it very quickly before I, I, I move on to something I think is really important has been really missed by the international media, at least. It's probably been more heavily covered in Ukraine, but it'd be interesting to know what Bordana thinks about it if she has time. But uh, on the Stalin centres, I reported, it, it was a, I, I wrote this story up a, a couple of a week or so ago, it was ahead of the Christmas period, on these Stalin centres which have popped up in major cities around uh, Russia. Um, uh, it's really a continuation of a, of a trend under Putin to try and rejuvenate the, the reputation of uh, one of the 20th century's biggest mass murderers. What I mean, uh, statues have popped up under, under, under Putin or, of Stalin, and this is a project, a Communist Party project, but it's been given the nod by the Kremlin uh, in many ways. Um, and, and the idea is really to, to steal ordinary Russians, um, uh, to steal them for a long war. And one of the easiest ways of doing that is to promote Stalin, who obviously was instrumental in defeating Nazi Germany in World War II. So lots of parallels. Putin wants to draw lots of parallels with his supposed aim, war aim of trying to defeat Nazis in Ukraine and what Stalin was doing in the uh, 1940s. Make of that what he will. It's obviously um, um, a completely crazy project, but it, but, but it is it is happening. It is important to understand. It has been going on for a while. It, it's sped up under uh, since the war in Ukraine. The, the, the other point I'd really like to make for your listeners, David, is uh, I want to take him to Georgia really quickly, where Bidzina Ivanishvili, the uh, billionaire uh, 
wealthiest guy in Georgia had said he's returning to politics. Uh, he said this on New Year's Eve. This is this is important because he set up this uh, Georgian Dream political party in 2011. Uh, eventually, won an election in 2012 and served the year as a prime minister, and then stepped back and and briefly came back as a uh, chairman since then. But he said he needs to come back to protect his Georgian Dream government from uh, human temptation. And and he sort of alluded. It was a very convoluted speech when he sort of alluded to to sort of uh, the collapse of the opposition and and potential corruption issues. But that's not how analysts see it, and that's not how I see it either. And this is the important bit. This guy, Vizini Ivanishvili, he made all his money, he made his billions in Russia in the 1990s. He's considered a pro-Kremlin, pro-Russia uh, billionaire who controls the government. Georgia has improved its relations with the Kremlin since the war in since, since the Kremlin's full-scale invasion of, of, of Ukraine. And this despite Georgia fighting its own war against Russia in 2008 and... Earlier in December, being given candidate membership status by the EU. So there's a lot going on in Georgia. We have the return or to frontline politics of the wealthiest person in, in, in the country, who's becoming the chairman of the ruling Georgian Dream political party again. We know that he's he's pro-Kremlin. And although Annes and others say he pays lip service to Georgia's aspirations to join the EU, the feeling is very much that he's going to continue to push Georgia, which in many ways should be a natural ally for Ukraine, towards the Kremlin. So really important story there for everyone to keep an eye on. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, a world affairs newsletter which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And, if you have a moment, leave a review, as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Charles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.